0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. And in the blue Bible is on page 491. If you do not have a Bible, please take one of these blue ones home as a gift. So once again, Mark 6, verses 45 through 56. Hear the word of the Lord. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their, boat, on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well." thus says God's word.
1: Heavenly Father, we draw ourselves up to your word, preparing our hearts to hear and to feast upon what you have laid before us. Thank you for the truth. We thank you for the rock-solid foundational nature of the truth, Lord. Lord, we thank you for, in your word, revealing to us who you are, that we are not left to discover it, to figure it out, to climb mountains and talk to gurus. Lord, we have been given, in your word, everything we need to know about who you are. And the knowledge of your true identity, Lord, is an invitation to us to know you. So, Lord, I pray that that, that desire... God, would not be squandered on a faithless people today, but that we would be a people who would know you, who would look to you and find hope and find what we need, Lord, to understand and and appreciate you and to walk faithfully before you. God, I, I pray for myself that you would do a supernatural work in me, Lord, that you would allow me to to speak faithfully, Lord, and and to not deviate from what you want revealed, Lord, and to have insight into things that, Lord, my my wicked heart can often miss. So, Lord, I I pray that you would just help me today as I stand before your people to read your word and bring about your result. So I thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You can be seated. So if you're new with us here today or you're visiting, we have been in a series in the book of Mark. We started the first Sunday in February, and over half the year we've made it all the way to chapter 6 of 16 chapters. So we're we're really taking our time. And one of the things you might have noticed, uh, we asked you when we first started this series that you would, on your own, take time to really... Read and reread and think about and meditate on the book of Mark, whether you took just the passages where we were together and kind of considered them on your own or you read the, the book through a few times during this time period while we're in it, because we really wanted you to be immersed in this idea. When the elders and I came up with the idea to do this series, it was to introduce you to Jesus, to, to help you to get a better picture of knowing Christ, who he is, what he did, and the purpose of that. And so, one of the things, if you've been doing that, and I hope you have and if you haven't, I hope you'll But if you've been doing that, you might have noticed that whenever you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the stories, the biographies, as it were, of Jesus, you will find that it's sometimes helpful to read the way that the other gospel writers, like, for example, we're reading Mark, so you might look at Matthew, Luke, and John, to see how they handled the same account. Now, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. You may have heard that term, and we've even used it a few times in the series, not understood what it means. It, it basically means that they're the synoptic gospels because they share the, the different perspectives on the same events, the same stories, the same accounts. And Synoptic, that word means to have similar view. Now, once you get through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see that there's several stories repeated, maybe with a detail here, a detail there that's added, um, by one or the other. But John mostly covers the events and the teachings from Jesus that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not. He had a different reason for writing and a different, uh, you know, a, a, a different pile of information that he wanted to communicate to believers. And so, it, it, he adds some different stuff that we don't see in the, in the synoptics. Now, when, one other thing I want to point out is that when some writers omit or add details that others omit, it's because that each one of them wrote and, and, and nuanced their story from their own perspective, their own background of the writer influenced the way that they reported this. And and also you have to take into consideration of each of the four gospels, each was written to a different audience. For example, Matthew was written primarily to Jews. Mark was written primarily to Romans. Uh, Luke was written primarily to the Greek world. And John was written to believers. And so there's different reasons for that. But one thing you will find is when they have the same stories, you'll find that their accounts are never contradictory. That's the miracle of the word. The individual perspectives that they bring actually makes each of the the stories when when combined together fuller and it makes them better understood. Now for example last week we talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. That is a a particularly interesting story in the Bible because it's one of the few that is included in all four Gospels. All four Gospels give the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But when we come to the story of Jesus walking on the water that Gloria read us today, Luke omits it entirely. He doesn't mention it at all. Matthew gives additional details. Some of you may be familiar with how uh, Peter said, if it's really you, Lord, let me walk out to you. All that's in Matthew. And then John um, gives it again, but he gives it in a very, very concise three or four cents version of it. Now, Mark said all that because Mark, though it's the shortest of the four, the shortest gospel of the four, um, the fewer chapters, fewer words shows himself over and over again to be a master in the economy of words. Mark is, is to the point, but he does not waste words at all. He, he, he paints such a full picture. He uses fewer words, but he adds details here and there throughout all these stories that bring aspects of color and life to his account. And it's probably because of the four uh, guys that he got these accounts directly from the Apostle Peter. He was Peter's right-hand man, and so this is in many ways, the Gospel of Mark is actually the Gospel of Peter because he is reporting what Peter told him. Now, his account here of Jesus walking on the water is no exception to that. We see that same, uh, you know, economy of words but adding things to it that make the story very, very uh, much come alive. Mark's version of this story focuses on the issue of identity. And what I mean by that, is he He shows us how the crowd and even the disciples misunderstood the true identity of who Jesus was. And he shows then, in the closing verses of our text today, how his identity was eventually misappropriated to be something less than the true reality of who Jesus is and who Jesus was. He shows how Jesus understood his own identity. And then he shows how Jesus revealed his divine identity. All of this, the central theme is the perception of Christ's identity by Christ himself, by the disciples, and by the people, the crowds. So the story takes us on the journey of discovering who Jesus really is. Can you acknowledge how important it is to know who Jesus really is? Because there are a lot of counterfeit secondary, false is being promoted in the world today. Would you agree with that statement? So it's really important that when we have a snapshot in the Bible like this that points to something as, as crucial as the identity of Christ that we take notice. Now, We also see how easy it is when we look at this this passage for us to completely misapprehend the true and full identity of Christ like both the people and the disciples did. So in today's story, John gives us a detail, and the reason I mentioned all that about the other three gospel writers, John gives us the detail that the others do not. Bible commentators believe that this detail helps explain the context of our text. So after feeding the 5,000, like I said, that story's in all four Gospels, John gives us this little detail in John 6.15. Perceiving then that the crowd were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, Mark tells us, in the text that Gloria read, that Jesus made the twelve get into the boat. The, the old versions say he constrained them. He literally um, uh, you know, commanded them to get in a boat and go to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. These same crowds, who their enthusiasm, uh, following this miraculous meal that they gave, they would have come and forcefully made him their ruler. Now, think about their mindset. They wanted Rome gone. They wanted uh, Israel to be established again as the center of the universe. And so they thought one that could provide bread for the masses could easily win the hearts of everyone in the nation and also uh, successfully oppose Roman rule. Now, the disciples, think about this, they were right with Jesus. They were his 12 closest followers. And so they were most likely swept into this thinking as well. There's one reason for that. They didn't understand yet what Jesus' mission was. They didn't fully grasp it, though they'd been with him all this time. And they were fixated on worldly kingdoms instead of a heavenly kingdom that Jesus kept talking about. They wanted deliverance from an earthly foreign power. They, they weren't as so much interested in the deliverance from sin and death that Jesus had come to provide. And because both the crowds and the disciples misunderstood the identity of Jesus, he separated himself from them. He sent the disciples ahead of him in the boat, and he personally stayed behind to dismiss the crowds that had come and had lunch the day before. Or that, yeah, that day. Jesus was being compelled by this crowd to be their king. But let me tell you something about Jesus. It was true, it is true. Jesus was no easily bought politician. He wouldn't let popular opinion define his mission. He knew who he was. He knew why he had appeared, and he knew what must be accomplished. And he wasn't persuaded by applause. He wasn't persuaded by flattery. A great example of this is later in in Jesus' story, which we'll see in both Mark and Matthew. Peter tried to insist to Jesus. He said, Jesus, you are way too important. This is way too big what's going on here for you to go to Jerusalem and die on a cross. And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? It wasn't gentle. He said, get behind me, Satan. Speaking to Peter. How would you like for Jesus to call you the devil? You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's exactly what was happening right here. When we claim to understand God in our own intellect, in our own wisdom, using our own strength, we will always miss the mark. Did you hear me? will always miss the mark. You're never going to use this gray matter to figure out God and get it right. Anybody got a pulse this morning? It's never going to happen. Anything truthful that you know about God must be revealed to us by Him in His Word. But Jesus, on the other hand, knows everything there is to know about us. Would you agree with that? And nothing has changed in 2000 years. People still misunderstand Christ's true identity. People talk about Jesus all the time and they have no idea who it is that they're talking about. They think he's nothing more than just another worldly religious leader. He's like Muhammad, he's like Buddha, he's like the Pope. Something think that he's the key to happiness and prosperity and that he's the friend who boosts your self-esteem so you won't feel so bad. He's never going to take issue with your sin. He calls it mistakes and problems. But in reality, the revelation of these scriptures is so much more. It, it tells us that he's the holy God, that he's the creator, the redeemer, that he is the king and he alone is the judge. He's the one who has been given a name which is above every other name. And at that name, the Bible tells us that every knee will eventually bow. And every tongue will confess his lordship. He is the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to get to God the Father. So, because of our fallenness, you should never be surprised when you discover that you have misidentified Jesus when you hear of others misidentifying Jesus. Because that is the absolute best that a fallen creature can do. When the, the carnal man comes in contact with that which is purely supernatural and, and, and so far beyond us in its holiness, we have, no, we have no concept of what we are encountering. To truly know him requires that knowledge must be given to us. It is never self-generated. It's never self-discovered. No one ever finds Jesus. If you're lucky enough to be in Jesus, it's because Jesus found you. John 3, 27, John the Baptist is talking to the Pharisees, and he says this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So, after putting the distraction of worldly praise away from him and steering the disciples away from that same temptation... Jesus makes his way to the mountain for private prayer. He gets alone. Now think about what's happening here. This is incredible to me. Though Jesus was moving unhesitatingly in the direction of the cross, Jesus was not swayed by what they said. He he wasn't swayed by public opinion or the vain expectations of the twelve. But even then, and even though that's true, in that moment he chose to reorient himself in fellowship with the Father. All these voices saying, Be our king! Show Rome! Give him what for! He put it all away from himself and he said, What I need is fellowship with the Father. Oh, friends, how do we do when the world is lavishing praise and flattery on us? Are we tempted when the world says, You're the one, be our king! We say, Well, I am pretty good. No, Jesus said, What I need... His fellowship with the father. The crowd and the disciples together misunderstood the reality of his true identity, who he was, what he came to do, and he was determined within himself to live before the father completely unfiltered. And thus he submitted his identity to God alone. He didn't give a second thought to the royal reign that the crowd would have thrust upon him. He didn't care about the scraps of power in which his followers so desperately desired to share. He was single-minded. He wanted to please the Father and do His will. Jesus was demonstrating something that most of us consider to be almost a foul word, a four-letter word. He was demonstrating submission. And it was this posture that would later hear Him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, If the cup of the, of the cross cannot pass from me unless I drink it, nevertheless, not my will. Let yours be done. See, don't misunderstand some kind of false hierarchy here. Jesus is equal to the Father and the Spirit in every single way. Our confessions tell us that. The Scriptures clearly tell us that. But for the purpose of eternal salvation, we're told this in Philippians, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God had by eternal decree made Christ Lord of all. But though that's true, it was the Father who had appointed the cross as the means by which Christ would reign. It was also, here's where this comes home to us. You can agree with everything that I said about Jesus. Let me tell you where it comes home to you. The Father had ordained the cross to be the appointed means by which Christ would reign, but he has also appointed that the cross alone is the instrument whereby we may be identified with Christ you cannot be identified with Christ and yet avoid the cross. You want to partake of the benefits of the cross? You've got to carry the cross. See, God does not appoint celebrities. What he does is he appoints cross-bearers for his glory. So what does this look like practically? How do you, like, go to work tomorrow morning or to school tomorrow morning and and put what I'm trying to communicate to you to work. Well, it means that you forsake the culture around you that says that image is everything. You embrace humility. It means that we follow the example of Christ by not seeking or glorying in the praise of others or cultivating some illusory persona on social media so that we can present a more palatable, albeit dishonest, picture of ourselves to others. It means that while living in a society that worships individual identity. We've gotten so perverse that you can define your own gender, you can define whether you're human or not, pick your own pronouns. We live in a society that literally, like an idol, worships individual identity. That we, swimming against the tide, submit ourselves to God alone and allow our identity to be defined by Scripture. So Paul did that. 1 Corinthians 59, he says, For I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. See, Paul could have boasted. Think about Paul compared to yourself. Paul could have boasted. He said, hey, you won't believe this, but I've been ushered into heaven. As a living man, I've been ushered into heaven. I have seen incredible visions. If you want something else from my resume, I've written most of the New Testament." But look what he did. Instead, he identified himself as the least of the apostles and in another place as the chief of sinners. He recognized that anything he was, he was only by the grace of God. So you have to look at that and you have to say, how do you view yourself? How do I view myself? Have you been reading so many Christian bestsellers, ladies, that you're convinced you're God's little princess? Are you man, a mighty man of God, a man of faith? Are you successful? Are you good-looking? Are you talented? Let me tell you something. When you boil away all the fat, I are nothing but sinners who hopefully have received grace at the foot of the cross of Jesus. Paul says over and over and over again that we have nothing else that we can boast in. We were destined for death, destined for hell until hopefully that day that we submitted our identity to Christ by His own grace redeemed us, made us a new creation, and gave us a brand new identity. So as Jesus is praying, He looks out over the sea, and He sees His disciples in the boat. They're navigating straight into a headwind to get where Jesus told them to go. And because of that, their sails are of no use to them. So they pulled out the oars, but the Bible says that they were making headway painfully. The Greek word there actually implies torment. They were being tormented by the task at hand. Now, Because of the details the other Gospels give us, we know that they'd probably been out there for about eight or nine hours. And another Gospel tells us that they'd only made it about three and a half miles out to sea of the journey that they were taking. They were exhausted. They were frustrated. They're like a man walking upstairs on a downward-going escalator. They're completely helpless. They're going nowhere. They're unable to proceed on their course. Anybody here ever felt that way? So Jesus decides to come to their aid. and, what a display of grace. And The more amazing thing is that he needs no boat. He doesn't swim out to them. But in a demonstration of his godhood, he walks out to their boat in the dark, on top of the raging sea. But Mark adds this strange detail. He says he meant to pass them by. Whoa, Jesus, over here. <laughs> that may strike you as odd, it did me, but why would he pass by? You're going to just sneak past them and go to the other side when they finally made it after expending all their efforts, and say, Surprise! No. Mark is making it clear that Jesus was more than a man. He was displaying his glory for them to see. Do you remember what we read in Exodus 33 after the golden calf incident? Moses is speaking with God and he says, Please, show me your glory. And God says to him, I will make all my goodness, watch this, pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Jesus was putting himself on display, but not as a prophet or a miracle worker or just another earthly king like they wanted to make him. He was showing himself to be no less than God Almighty. He wanted them to see more than they'd ever seen before, for their faith to expand, and for him to receive the fullness of their faith and dependence. Before they joined the crowd in misunderstanding his identity, but now they take it up and odds, they actually don't just misunderstand his identity, they mistake his identity. They mistake his identity for something divorced from reality. They saw this shadowy human form approaching their vessel in the dark, shrouded by these swirling mists picked up by the wind. And instead of recognizing God, they saw a ghost. They saw a fandom. They saw, literally, a sea demon, is what they, their minds told them was approaching them. Now think about this. These are not guys on their fo- first little dinghy. These are experienced seafarers. And they're reduced, the scripture tells us, to crying out like frightened children. Man, how easy is it for us to become terrified by what we don't understand Or become terrified by the interpretation of what our eyes see. Instead of seeing God's face moving closer and closer towards us, our eyes become dimmed by the darkness of sin. And we can only see phantasms foretelling of imminent disaster. John Piper once famously said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Have you found that to be true? To trust in the Lord, though, it is in these moments of greatest fear to walk completely differently. 2 Corinthians 5-7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. And so our prayer needs to be daily, Lord, open our eyes to see you as you really are, your true identity, in all your love, your mercy, your holiness. So it's, since Jesus hears, now we've talked over and over again, the word that Mark uses in his gospel 42 times, euthys in the Greek, translated immediately. And the Bible says that immediately, euthys, as he hears their cries... As soon as he hears his terror-stricken disciples, he crawls out to them. Calls out to them. How often does his voice call out to us in the middle of our fear, in the middle of our confusion, even in the middle of our sin from his word at just the right time? Some of you have been in misery for weeks and months and years and say, I can't hear God anymore and all I see is ghosts on the sea. It's because you haven't taken time to listen for his voice. He always cried out. When we're scared and confused, if we'll just attune our ears to where he's speaking. And folks, you don't need to send 50 bucks to the guy on the TV. This is where he's speaking. This is it. He comes at just the right time. Isaiah 65, 24 says, Before they call, I will answer. They are yet speaking, I will hear. Jesus doesn't wait for them to recognize him. He tells them who he is. He reveals his identity. He provides the revelation they needed to be a peace in the storm. Verse 50 says that he immediately spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. His voice called to them to recognize him and to take courage. But I want you to see if there were more to his words than just telling him it was the Jesus they knew. Hey guys, it's so cool, it's me. Don't worry, don't be afraid. No, the English translation says Jesus said it is I. But what it said in the Greek was, Ego I me. Ego I me," and those words, ego I me" adds greater emphasis, and what they literally mean is I am. Not it is I, but I am. Do you remember how God introduced himself to his knee-knocking servant named Moses? Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Jesus identified himself on the sea like this. Take heart. I am. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. As his glory passed by, it's proven. Take note of this, that the sign wasn't enough. The sign had simply terrified them. But then the word came, I am. And it calmed their trembling hearts. Jesus came into the boat, and, 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 and he came to it, and he climbed inside of it, and as soon as he did, the wind stopped. In chapter 4, we saw this. Uh, Jesus had been sleeping in the boat, in the same boat, on the same sea, in a similar storm. And the disciples had woken him, and and he stood, and he rebuked the storm. He told it, peace be still. And the sea was miraculously, suddenly calm, just like this time. And if you'll recall, the stunned 12 had asked the question in the aftermath of that first storm. Do you remember what they asked? Looking at each other, stunned at what had just happened. And they said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the revealing of his identity by sign and word, there should have been no doubt as to who he was. But sadly, that wasn't the case. Why was that? Mark tells us in verse 51 and 52, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hard. What's he talking about? The, the, the miracle that happened just a few hours earlier. When Jesus turned the loaves, the, the, uh, broke the loaves and gave them to 5,000 people. What he's saying is so much of what Christ had done, including the miracle of the loaves and fishes just a few hours previous, should sure removed any lingering doubt as to Christ's identity. But their hearts were hardened. They hadn't yet received the light that the Holy Spirit would soon give them to overcome their dullness so that they might hear and see and believe. How impossible is it for us to believe until Christ opened our eyes. But if you're a believer, that is not the case with you. You have no such Excuse. You have the Holy Spirit. Christ's true identity has been revealed in fullness in his word. If you walk in unbelief now, you're simply sinning against the light that you have received. The crowds that the day before misunderstood the identity of Christ the next day misappropriate his identity. What do I mean by that? Well John says that the day after Christ fed them, he taught them uncomfortable spiritual truths, with the result that the entire crowd, the five thousand men plus women and children, reject him and his teachings, and one by one they go away. They abandon him that day. And Mark portrays him as portrays the crowd rather as uninterested in his teaching, only interested in his miracles, seeking only to touch his clothes to receive wonders. And the amazing thing is, though that's true, as many as touched it were made whole. So, in closing, humanity has three options in recognizing Christ through identity. First, if we misunderstand his identity, we will come to false conclusions about him. We'll try to take him by force and use him as a tool to accomplish our own agenda. Second, if we mistake his identity, we'll assume that he's something that he's not, like a disinterested, doddering old grandfather in the sky— Or a motivational speaker to hype us up or something even more hideous like the disciples did thinking he's an evil phantom and that all his righteous judgments are cruel and tyrannical, meaning to destroy and not redeem us. If we misappropriate his identity, we'll always be wondering how to access temporal benefits from him instead of being satisfied to be defined by him and to be found obediently submitting to him and worshiping him. The good news is for those who will listen, his true identity has been revealed. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, both the grace and truth He represents give us the perfect picture of who He is. So this is my question. Will you misunderstand Him? Will you mistake Him? Will you disappropriate Him? Or will you today... Cry out that God would reveal him to, him, him to you, that you might truly know him in grace and truth. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you that you have not, for those that hear by faith, you have not hidden your identity. But you've revealed it, God. You've showed us who you are. You've showed us the truth. And you've called us to know you. And you have provided the Holy Spirit to enlighten us to the reality Lord, I pray that those here today who may be in the false comfort of a false Christ would cry out to know you. That they would cry out to know you in reality. That they would cry out to know you full of grace and full of truth, Lord. And I pray that they would not be denied, but they would see you as you truly are. And that they would reap the benefits of following you by faith in reality, in your revealed identity. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The beauty of sharing together each week at the Lord's table is that um, the word, the, the word is confirmed and made evident to us in the breaking of the bread, taking of the cup. That we see here um, a reminder of Christ's sacrifice for us to reveal to us the glory of the Father. And so, we, um, when we do this, um, this is not some ceremony or symbol. This is the way that God has ordained for us to be connected to the life of Christ to renew our covenant. And so the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 to come prayerfully and come preparing our hearts and, and um, uh, to to consider ourselves. And so I'm going to invite you to come and receive the elements. And as you're coming, just take the time to do that, to consider uh, what the Lord may have you to acknowledge and repent of, and to, even in the light of today's message, if there are ways that you have misunderstood or misrepresented him, that you could come and, and reorient yourself like Jesus did on the mountain in the fellowship with the Father by partaking of these elements. You're welcome to come, pick your elements back to the table, to your chair, and then we'll take it together in just a moment. Matthew says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake of the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake of the cup. Lord, we thank you for these precious elements that remind us of you, that unite us to you, and that proclaim the gospel to us again in a new, tangible way. So thank you for this, Lord. We give you glory. Amen. would place your hands in a receiving position, and I'll pronounce this benediction over you. It speaks to me of the identity of Christ. Revelation 21, 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.